Well, this morning I want us to begin by reading um, a, a scripture that sets the context of Palm Sunday, though really we're going to go to a passage that precedes that in our sermon this morning. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. <clears throat> I'm going to be reading um, several portions. We're going to read this first, then we're going to go back into Matthew chapter 20 in just a minute. But Matthew chapter 21, looking at verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, this is Jesus and his disciples, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Notice this, church. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put uh, on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so uh, we see this text uh, as our understanding of what we would traditionally call Palm Sunday. Uh, where the palm branches were cut down and laid out uh, in front of Jesus. And uh, there were those, I think, who were part of his entourage who came and, uh, and, and, and proclaimed that he is um, uh, the son, uh, or I'm sorry, that, that, that he is um, uh, the son of David. Yes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So we think about this passage that we're so familiar with, but what precedes this? As we approach the celebration of Resurrection Sunday, I wanted us to take a look at the triumphal entry a little bit differently. So we're going to look at the mission of Jesus. So um, we're familiar with the scene of, of Jesus coming into the city, but what precedes it is so important for our understanding of what happens then afterward. So um, I want us to uh, look, work backward from the scripture that we just read concerning what has been called the triumphal entry. There's something uh, different about the triumphal entry um, than maybe if we just kind of read that passage that we just read on its own. There's something more to it than that. And, and uh, we need to see how what people expressed concerning Jesus's ministry versus what actually happened or what they expressed concerning the coming kingdom and what they understood it to be versus what actually happened as important for understanding these truths this morning. So now let's read uh, over in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Notice that, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, 
You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, meaning her sons, John and James, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the, the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, you must be, uh, you must be your slave. Even, so in comparison here, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And in what way? To give his life a ransom for many. Dear ones, there's so much here for us to unpack. What is so interesting about the triumphal entry is that it is not fulfilling the expectations of those who are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. Based on what they had seen Jesus doing, they expected something much more grand and kingly to occur. Luke tells us that they were responding as they were because all the mighty works that he had uh, been saying, um, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This kingly language does not betray who Jesus is, but it does show a lack of understanding regarding his mission as the suffering servant which was clear. Let me say that again. It was clear in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus accuses. We're going to see this in John 5 coming up. Um, or I'm sorry, in our study of John, we're going to see this coming up where he says to the religious leaders, you read the scriptures seeking salvation, but you missed that they were speaking of me. So uh, it, it's interesting to think about the fact that they were quoting uh, when they said... Um, uh, Hosanna, um, or blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're, they're quoting from Psalm 118 and verse 26. Um, as if they had remembered um, that part only and not what is stated above it, that the one who came in the name of the Lord was also the one who was known as the stone that the builders rejected. The stone that the builders rejected. This is indeed the first coming of Jesus. Yes, he is coming in the name of the Lord. He is coming to inaugurate his kingdom, but it looks much different than what they expected. This is the mission of Jesus' first coming. So here's the main point this morning, and you probably have this uh, written out for you in the material that Lori sent earlier this week. At Jesus' first coming... He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Think about that. He did not come in his mission, his first arrival, to be served. What, what, is, what do you think about when you think about a king? A king is one who commands with authority, and he is one who is served. But Jesus came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The fact that even those closest to him did not understand this, is extremely evident throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus. Not the least is the time right after Peter declares that Jesus is the Son of God, and then he rebukes Jesus for saying that he must suffer and die, to which Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. 
for your interests are not the same as the father's. So even as, you know, Jesus asks um, the disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and they kind of run through the, the gambit of what people have said. And then he says, who do you say I am? And, and Peter answers rightly, you are the son of God. Um, in, in, in his very next breath, after Jesus says, you're right, Peter, this has been given to you not by man, but by God, which I think refers to um, the miracles that they had seen, the, the affirmations, the confirmation of who Jesus is. But a moment later, when Jesus says, you're right, Peter, and, and, and now I must go and suffer, Peter says, Lord, we're not going to let that happen. And the Lord rebukes him because this is the plan. This is the plan. So I want us to see three parts in the narrative of Jesus explaining his mission in this sort of pre uh, precursor to the triumphal entry which makes clear what that triumphal entry is about. It is not him coming to establish an earthly kingdom. It is to inaugurate a spiritual kingdom that is on a trajectory toward a physical kingdom. The first part of the narrative is this. A bold request is made in verses 20 and 21. Because the disciples had not yet understood the mission of Jesus, James and John's mother makes this very bold request. Look at it again with me in John 20 and verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in the kingdom. To some degree, this is not out of line with something he had told them about his future glory. If you look back up um, in uh, chapter 19 um, and uh, verse 28 of Matthew, so turning a page over for most of us, look at what it says in Matthew 19 and verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But um, even though he says this, they must have uh, missed uh, what he had said just previously to this request. Um, this is especially true considering the entire context in which they heard this. Jesus, in this context, previously had interacted with a rich man. Uh, look just above. And let's read through this. Verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, so in other words, if you would follow all of the law, specifically here, the moral law, the, the Ten Commandments, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. What's Jesus saying here? Um, notice that Jesus doesn't... Um, talk about covetousness in his list, which Paul calls idolatry. Um, and uh, idolatry, 
hanging on to earthly possessions, etc. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had many, or he had great possessions. This young man, or this rich man, wasn't willing to give up what he had in order to follow Jesus. It indicated the true reality of his heart. Verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Notice the, um, the parallel of eternal life from what the man uh, says in, in verse 16 to the kingdom of God. Jesus equates these two. In verse 25, the, the, the disciples are shocked by this. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? In other words, if, if a rich person who clearly has the favor of God, according to their point of view, can't enter into heaven, who then can be saved? Who can, who can enter into the kingdom of heaven? Who can have eternal life? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It all rests upon God, who is gracious and merciful. Then Peter said in reply, I love Peter. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, Peter is expressing, I think in, in reality, his heart, Lord, we have left everything and we have followed you. What then do we have? What's our reward for that? Verse twenty. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious thrones, <clears throat> you have followed me, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But notice this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Notice how that, how that parallels what Jesus says about um, not coming to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Not lording it over, but serving. The greatest shall be last and the least shall be first. These are all the things that should um, meld together as we think about what Jesus is saying here. Look again, especially at verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I think Jesus here is expressing this idea that while the disciples and certainly now us, while we are still on earth, in this time of the inaugurated kingdom, we're not going to rule or reign with him because right now it is our duty to follow him and in certain ways to suffer for following him. Not sort of that self-flagellation um, kind of a way. Flagellation, not flagellation. Oh my goodness. Uh, not in that self-flagellation uh, kind of way. Not in that self-way in which we are sort of somehow earning grace uh, or favor from God. But in this current state of grace, where we are under God's grace by the Lord Jesus Christ, that we um, are suffering for knowing him. We are serving because we know him 
we're, we'll see in a moment, um, encouraged to follow Jesus in serving in this way. Now, before we put too much blame back into chapter 20, before we put too much blame on um, the mother of John and James, it is likely that they had prompted her based on what Jesus said in chapter 19 and verse 28 and the surrounding context. Hey, look, if we're going to reign with him, mom, go and ask him if we can sit on his right hand and on his left hand. They had not captured what his mission was on the earth in his first coming. Certainly there had been some amount of pride in regard, uh, in regard to this request. Maybe being known as the sons of thunder, as Jesus had called them, this fit well with their personalities. They're kind of like, hey, look, we're, we're thunder and lightning here, <laughs> and uh, we should sit on your right hand and on your left. Um, uh, you know, this maybe has something to do with when they asked fire to rain down upon the heads of those who did not receive him in Samaria. Luke chapter 9, verse 54. And when, the, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? <laughs> so uh, so uh, actively uh, wanting to punish those who did not receive Jesus. They didn't quite understand his first mission was to not be served, but to serve uh, many by dying in their place. What about us? Do we understand uh, the mission of Jesus, which he came to accomplish in his first coming? Perhaps this morning you think that Jesus was a good teacher. You think he was um, a kind man. Uh, He was some sort of a guru, prophet, or something along these lines. And certainly he was the prophet. But do you know him as the righteous son of God who lived a perfect life that you could not live, died in your stead so that you would not have to endure the wrath of God? And then him being raised three days later, which we're going to celebrate next Sunday, in order to conquer sin and death. If you do not know him as that, then you do not know, you do not recognize who Jesus is and what he came to do. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. I implore you to turn from your sin, to trust in Christ as who he says he is. See what his mission is here. What about those of us who are in Christ? Are we more concerned about, you know, our position, maybe within the church or the kingdom, rather than serving those who are with us in the body of Christ? Are we building our own idea of what God's kingdom ought to be, and therefore we're building our own kingdom? Now, clearly what we see here is we are in this already not yet period when Jesus has, yes, inaugurated his kingdom but that kingdom is, is yet to come where we will rule and reign with him. Currently, we are to take up our cross and follow him, suffer as he suffered, not for the sake of our sins, that's what he suffered for, but we suffer for his name and for the sake of the gospel, his gospel, proclaiming the good news, uh, making disciples, serving the church, um, uh, living in and under the grace of God. Uh, his mercy, um, rejoicing in our great salvation. Truly, even as Jesus predicted the the disciples, that the disciples and we will reign with him in the age to come, but we are not to do so in the way that is requested here, um, which is what is seen in the next point. Jesus 
gives a weighty response. And it is a weighty response in verses 22 and 23. You do not know what you are asking, he says. Look at it with me in chapter 20 and verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are. And he responds with, yes, you will. You will drink this cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Are you able to drink the cup, Jesus says? You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Indeed, the pathway to ruling the kingdom for Jesus included the cross upon which he would drink the cup. What is this cup? Maybe more importantly, what is in this cup? Listen to a couple of passages from the Old Testament. You can scratch these down and look them up later and read the context. I would encourage you. Psalm 75 and verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. All the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51 and verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. What is in the cup that Jesus is going to drink? It is the rightful, righteous wrath of a holy God. It is the judgment for the sinners for whom Jesus died. Look at, listen again to Psalm 75 and verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That is for everyone. There are either those for whom Jesus drank that cup for them, or there are those yet who will drink that cup unless they turn and trust in him. Nothing could be more serious. Nothing could be more grave. This is what brought about so much grief to the heart of Jesus as he pondered the cross at Gethsemane. He knew what was in the cup. He knew what he would have to endure. The eternal wrath of God for sinners. And James and John flippantly respond, yeah, sure, we can do that. They have no idea. I have no idea what they are saying they commit themselves to here in this passage. We, though we stand on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, and we see the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane, we do not understand that wrath. It is eternal wrath. Jesus says to them, indeed, you will drink of this cup. But the decision for who sits at the right hand and left is up to the Father. 
Now, there's a lot of things that could be discussed here, but I want us to focus upon the issue to which we're driving. So let's just briefly understand what Jesus means when he says they will drink from this cup. In short, they too would suffer, though certainly at a lesser degree, and not in the same way that Jesus did, not with the wrath of God as he did. But certainly they would suffer for the name of Christ. They would, they would die. They would be persecuted because of the name of Christ. Again, we sort of get this idea of the already, not yet, in, in, in the current time that we find ourselves in the inaugurated kingdom of Christ, we suffer. We suffer before we reign. Now look, I'm not seeking to say this as a, a way of bringing us down or making us feel dour this morning, but just recognizing that, yes, Jesus is king. He's king of our hearts currently. But we recognize that the world does not see this. Well, they do see it, but they don't recognize it. They, they, they refuse to submit to it, as Romans 1 tells us. And so rather than thinking about the way in which we will reign with him, that's a good thing to think about. But we need to realize the reality of, of what we're currently doing. So this reminds, us, reminds those of us in Christ this morning that while here on earth, we will suffer as followers of Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, you will suffer the fullness of God's wrath for eternity. That's a reality. Uh, saints, we can remember that our suffering here, uh, Paul says, is light and momentary affliction compared to the greater weight of glory. What a truth that we need to hang on to. Uh, not just because of what we're currently um, experiencing as um, this COVID-19 crisis is happening, but certainly um, as we uh, are Christians here on the earth awaiting Christ's return. But we need to also consider those who are not in Christ, and those who are not in Christ need to consider the wrath that will be endured for eternity for not trusting in Christ today. Well, this whole conversation has begun to spill over to the hearing of the other disciples who become indignant which leads us to our final point. An appropriate lesson is taught. Number three, an appropriate lesson is taught. As I said, the other disciples are now catching wind of this conversation. They become indignant. Likely this is due to jealousy more than anything, more this idea of why didn't we think of this? These guys are jumping in ahead of us. And um, this again prompts Jesus to explain why he has come and at the same time teach a lesson about those who are great in the kingdom. Look at verses twenty. 5 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Notice what he says here. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Notice the sequence here. Essentially, Jesus is saying, men, you know and see how the Gentiles rule. They lorded over those under them. This is how Rome had treated Israel and anyone else under their rule. But this isn't how it's going to be done amongst you. This is clearly seen, restated over and over again in the New Testament. The greatest among you are those who serve, and the first is the one who considers himself a slave to others. What does Paul 
picking up on this theme of the Lord Jesus, say in Philippians chapter 2, we are not to look out for our own interests. That's what's natural to us. But we are to look out for the interest of others. That's supernatural. That's from conversion. That's the grace of God and mercy of God in our life. That we're not to look out for our own interests, that which is natural to us, but supernaturally now we've been converted. We are in Christ. We are attached to the vine and and we now look out for the interests of others. And what is the example that Paul gives concerning this in in Philippians chapter 2? The example that Jesus gives, what he does. Look at what Jesus did, Philippians 2 says. He laid aside his glory, uh, not that he laid aside his deity, but that he laid aside being known as the Son of God, particularly from the status of eternity. He came to earth, he put on humanity, and um, his name is the name that is above every name because of what he does in his humanity. But what does he do? He gives his life a ransom for many. Even just as in the same way the Son of Man, that is Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is the example right? So uh, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That is our status currently. We are servants. We are servants of one another. We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to serve each other in this way. Jesus came as the suffering servant, and this is what makes the triumphal entry, entry so interesting. If the men who were closest to him did not understand his mission, certainly those who were rejoicing at his entrance must have been thinking, if he's a king, why does he ride in a, a, a on a donkey look at this fulfillment in chapter 21 and verse 5 so say to the daughter of zion behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt the foal of the beasts of burden if he's a king why does he ride a donkey if he's a king why does he not conquer rome if he's a king why does he let them treat him as they do. Simply it is because he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He will reign, but the pathway to that reigning was leading him to drink the cup of God's wrath upon the cross. This is the path of Christ. This is the path that he asks us to follow, to take up our cross and follow him. And we must remember, first and foremost, why Jesus came. When we think about this Easter season, this Resurrection Sunday season that we're, that's upon us, we think about this triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday. We think about Jesus entering into the city on a donkey, not on a horse, a conquering horse, but on a humble beast of burden. This really symbolizes what Jesus has done. He has come to serve. He has been that one who has served and will bear the sins of many for a ransom. That cost that we who are in Christ deserve to pay, he paid upon the cross. And so as he enters into the city and they are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, it is within days that the crowds then begin to yell, crucify him crucify him. And the very son of glory is placed upon a tree and he does what he says. He gives his life 
as a ransom for many. This not only instructs our understanding of God's grace and mercy through the gospel, it also indicates the way in which we are to respond as believers in the gospel, how it shapes our understanding of who we are. Is there a coming a day where we will reign with him? Yes and amen. But for today, we are to serve as he served. We are to love the local assembly. We are to um, be servants of one another. We're to proclaim the gospel to others. And um, always in view is the road of Jesus's life, the road to the cross, the empty tomb, the ascension of Christ, where he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool and the time where he comes to reign. Yes, amen. We wait for that. As those of us who are in Christ, we not only um, believe in Christ's mission as a means of making us right with God, but also as a means of God's sanctifying work in our life. His grace not only saves us, but it changes us into his image, which means we will follow in his footsteps. Yes, one day reigning with him, but first having to share in the suffering that he did, serving one another, being maligned by the world, and um, waiting with great expectation his return. Perhaps you're watching this this morning and you've misunderstood the mission of Jesus. I hope that what you've heard this morning clearly is that Christ came as a suffering servant to die as a ransom for unbelievers. My call to you this morning, my plea with you, is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust him. Believe that he is the eternal son of God who lived the perfect life, who died in the place of sinners just like you and rose again three days later. And that that pathway to that was through his perfect life to the cross where he drank the cup of God's wrath for sinners like you and me. But three days later, he gloriously resurrected. Awesome truths this morning. 